This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, August 9th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I bring to you an update to the hot war in Israel. Hot war, you say? I thought there was a ceasefire in Gaza. Yes, that's the men with bullets and bricks and mortars. I'm talking about an equally deadly substance, ice cream. Ben and Jerry's, you see, does not want to sell its ice cream in what they call the occupied territories, Gaza and the West Bank. And therefore, Ben and Jerry's shouldn't have to, right? Well, here's the complication. Ben and Jerry's sold itself to Unilever, and Unilever doesn't want to leave a whole bunch of potential profits on the table. Also, once you say we're not selling to those two areas, the rest of Israel gets very upset and says you are engaged in the BDS movement. That's the boycott, divest, and sanction movement. In fact, if Ben and Jerry's were a German company, they couldn't even take that stance because the BDS movement is seen as anti-Semitic in Germany. But the two Jewish owners of Ben and Jerry's, Ben and Jerry's, they knew that they might be getting into some entanglements when they sold to a huge multinational corporation. So they had a carve-out. They had a conscience carve-out that they could still engage in their activism. They could still name their flavors Pecan Resist, which worked. It totally brought down the presidency. Or Emolument Chocolate Chip, or Frozen Impeachment and Cream, or whatever they want to call their flavors. And they say part of this activism, part of this conscience, is not to sell their ice cream in the territories. However, Unilever had a different interpretation of that. And they said, okay, we'll take the Ben and the Jerry, those literal names in English, off the cartons, and the English names will be off the cartons, but we'll just sell it with Hebrew names, and we'll have a subsidiary, a a, a fellow middleman in the mix to sell the ice cream, and therefore Ben and Jerry's, you could have your conscience clear, but we'll still be maximizing profit, which is what we do as a multinational corporation. This has, of course, all landed in court. The lawyer for Ben and Jerry's is accusing their parent of acting like someone who tells LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Actually, isn't it more like if that someone is Jeannie Buss, the owner of the Lakers, telling LeBron James to shut up and dribble? Either way, LeBron James didn't want to take that. Ben and Jerry do not want to take that either. And I'm happy to bring you an update on a heated fight in one of the most fought over areas of the world where I think this time no one's going to get killed unless it's from the cholesterol and blood sugar. On the show today, the spiel is about the subject of not just the ice cream flavor pecan resist, but an FBI search warrant. Donald Trump, is it the archives that'll get him? We'll see, because we don't really know what's in the warrant. Didn't stop a lot of people from being very upset and making big predictions about the future of the presidency and America. But first, tomorrow, President Biden is to sign the PACT Act. This is about burn pits. You probably saw Jon Stewart engaging in high-profile advocacy to pass this long-proposed piece of legislation. But what are burn pits exactly? And how are their effects felt by U.S. veterans? We'll talk to one. Jason Piccolo is a veteran of the army who served in Iraq, was stationed right next to a burn pit. He struggled with his own health issues after living around these burn pits and has spoken with many of his former colleagues who are now facing serious health concerns. Jason Piccolo, up next. 
This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. Tomorrow, President Joe Biden signs into law the Promise to Address Comprehensive Toxics Act, or the PACT Act. You've probably heard about it because getting this act over the finish line was a monumental deal. John Stewart publicly feuding with all manner of senator and activist who claimed that there was accounting chicanery going on, but eventually it did pass. I'm speaking now with Jason Piccolo, who left military service in 2006 as an infantry captain that included a tour of Iraq. His service started in 1993 as a private. He rose up the ranks. He's the author of Out of the Shadows, a government whistleblower's firsthand account of how the protection of migrant children became a political firestorm. He hosts the Protectors podcast, and we're going to talk about burn pits and the PACT Act with him. Jason, welcome to The Gist. Hey, thanks for having me on. Tell me about your exposure, and I mean that literally and metaphorically with burn pits. I was involuntarily recalled, meaning I was living in my civilian world, doing my job at the time. I was a special agent with the former U.S. Customs working uh, cartel type stuff and counter narcotics type stuff in San Diego. I got recalled, uh, brought back into the military service, and I was sent overseas to Kuwait for two months. And while I was in Kuwait, I was exposed to the the highway of death. I think people can remember that. That was from the 1990s desert storm uh, where the government, uh, when we had military action there, essentially bombed the whole area. So when I was there, I was exposed to everything going on with that. They were still reclaiming and getting rid of all of the military vehicles that were there at the time. I was subsequently sent north to Iraq and to Balad, Iraq. And when I got to Balad, there was the whole time I'm there, there's smoke. And I'm like, what's going on with this smoke? And people are like, well, that's the burn pits. Now, let's go back to the highway of death. I mean, that war ended in 1990. So for 15 years, if we went there, there were still burned out husks of vehicles on that road. There are husks everywhere. I'm sure, I don't you know. This was about 15 years ago. So I imagine they're still there. I mean, if they're there 15 years after the war. They're yeah. probably still there because that was a, like just a massive military uh, combat. I mean, literally for miles and miles, there's vehicles just blown apart with every type of munition you could possibly imagine. And I tell people that because unexploded ordnance, exploded ordnance, everything comes out of it. I mean, you have uranium, you have every type of munition when things hit other things, they explode, and all that matter goes everywhere. And that matter goes into the sand. And when I tell people about Kuwait, I try to explain them what particulate matter is. They're like, what what are you talking about? It's just sand. We have sand here in the U.S. The difference is over there, sand becomes finite. All this finite particulate matter goes into your airways and gets embedded in your lungs. And that's where this toxic exposure can progress into the cancerous stages and all uh, types of other physical ailments. That's why when people talk about burn pits, there's all sorts of other toxic, it's not just burn pits, it's toxic exposure. 
So when you first encountered the concept of the burn pit, had you heard about it? Um, and how was it explained to you what they were burning and if it was safe? I've never heard of burn pits before that. I mean, I've burned. I mean, <laughs> I did counter drug in college where I was burning marijuana with diesel the whole time. A lot of us burn marijuana in college, but you're talking about a different kind of thing. But it's different with diesel. You know, when you burn yeah. the marijuana diesel, it's not a good thing. It's not a good smell. So I yeah. knew about burning things and stuff like that. But when it came to burn pits, I had no idea. I remember driving by it. And Balad had one of the biggest burn pits, I think, imaginable. It was football fields upon football fields. And to explain to the audience what a burn pit is, is anything and everything from uh, medical waste, the plastic bottles, the chemicals, the cleaners. If a Humvee got blown up, anything that was left on the inside that wasn't being scrapped was thrown in there. The, one of the biggest hospitals in the country was in Balad. All of the medical waste, uniforms with blood on them, uniforms with uh, any type of chemicals they use for the medical field, any type of chemicals for cleaning, for anything gets thrown into this pit. And these pits burn 24-7, 365. And it's, if you've ever been around 130, 140 degrees anytime, and you have this toxic smoke going all around, it sounds like you could just put on a gas mask and live like that for 24-7. You can't. It's just not realistically. You could put a face mask on, but that brings back to the whole particulate matter, this finite material that goes straight through a face mask. So when you think about a burn pit, think about just a pit burning all the time and just black smoke everywhere. And remember, when you're talking, you can see the smoke, but it's everything else that you don't see. So I, I recall there was guard posts and you would have a guard right by this burn pit ingesting this all the time. And not wearing a mask, not wearing. You anything. can't. I mean, think about it. Are you going to wear a mask for eight hours in a row? I mean, you don't know if it's life-threatening at the time. You're just saying, ah, it's just crappy. I didn't think it was life-threatening at the time. But mm -hmm. has since then, now you know it is life-threatening. How many countless um, troops have died since then? Have you had any ill effects from it, do you believe? I, I believe so. I mean, I lost my gallbladder in 2013. I remember I grew up in the woods in New Jersey, hiking all the time. I had a great lung capacity, no issues at all. I get back from the war. Months later, I start just mucus all the time. It's like seasonal allergies all the time. Uh, a few years later, the gallbladder goes. Uh, late, next, later on, I, I just had a, an MRI not that long ago. I have glassy, opaque um, nodules. I've, I have nodules. I have six millimeter nodules in my lungs now. And they're like, oh, you have this glassy opaque surfaces in your lungs, meaning there's stuff embedded in my lungs now. I don't work out hard anymore because the mm -hmm. intensity, I don't have the, the lung capacity like I used to. So I believe I've been affected by it. I have rhinitis now. My nose is congested all the time. You probably, if you talk to me in the morning, it clears up uh, during the day, but then it, it's like a, 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 let's play repeat the next day. So it's like, I am, I like to say that I'm not one of the solid, solid, like hardcore, I'm going to have, I should knock on wood, get cancer, but there's so many people are getting cancers. Because think about it, when you get things embedded into your system and yeah. things grow like modules and nodules and all the other good medical terms out there, it becomes cancer. Yeah. And then you die and yeah. you don't die a nice death. And that is why 
you know, I'm glad it's finally getting the exposure exposure that it is. So when you talk to your fellow soldiers or people you served with and their median age, I'm doing the math here, maybe around 40. Are you hearing incidents of this sort of thing or actual cancer? Yes, all the time. Uh, you see it on the news, you see it everywhere. But when you actually talk to people getting cancer, are people having these issues with their lungs? You're like, you know, we're 40s like me. I'm, I'm about to hit 50. But I went to the war later on in life. I was 34, 35 when I went to the war. A lot of these uh, people went when they were 20, 25. And it's not just Iraq. It's everywhere that they could be exposed to toxins, um, Afghanistan, everywhere. Now, the PAC Act is great. helps veterans. I love it. But there's, I always bring this up when I talk to it as much as I can, because I was talking to one of my buddies last night, an FBI agent. He was deployed to Iraq three to four times for 90 days at a time. Mm-hmm. How many DOD civilians, how many federal civilians, whether they're law enforcement or not, have been deployed to these same combat zones, these same zones with these burn pits? It had been exposed. When you go to war, it's not just the soldiers. It's not just the Marines, not just the sailors. It's the thousands of people who support them that are not in uniform. The contractors, the civilians, the the employees that are just getting exposed and they're not getting a lot of help. When 9-11 happened, and you know this, I mean, the audience will know this about the 9-11 toxins that came out of that dust. Same kind of principle. Everybody that responded to that site was exposed in one way or the other. You could wear the medical masks, but it wasn't just the first responders. It wasn't just the emergency responders. One of my good friend's um, husband was a 9-11 responder, and he, he ran construction while he was there removing the steel beams, and he came up with cancer. These same types of things that happen in 9-11 with, with the exposure are the same types of exposures that you have overseas. It's just toxins going into the body and essentially killing you. I mean, that's that simple. So this bill or a version of this bill was actually introduced years ago. Were you and your fellow veterans on it and paying attention to it for years and years? You know, you hear it, you think it's going to be great, but, you know, I wouldn't say I was burned by it, but the the burn pit registry, that's been going on for 10 years. Whatever happened to that? I've put claims in with the VA about my lungs, about my gallbladder, about rhinitis, about everything. Deny, deny, deny. You know, how many um, how many people, let's say 200,000 people put in for a claim, how many people are actually getting? Because they're not addressing the fact that this, you can be exposed and you can get health. They don't really count it towards your military service. Like, ah, you know, you're just getting older, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping with the PACT Act, it, you know, your presumption, your presumptive indicators like let's say i have rhinitis i have lung issues that they could say okay you know if this happened within a certain time frame you could say we could presume that it happened towards a war and i'm hoping with this and with the burn pit registry that the people out there who need help get the help my concern is not getting a paycheck my concern is if i have health issues later on in life that i could go and say okay i need help and this is why i need help have you been disappointed by failure of the government, the federal government, to act on this issue in the past? Yes. I mean, think about it. Agent Orange took us decades. This should not, we know, we are, you know, when the first burn, when the first study of the Balad burn pit came out, it was, 
you know, by, a, I believe it was Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel did a study said, okay, this is what's happening. This stuff's really bad. And it got discounted. It was like, ah, oh, you know what? We're not going to presume that these people are getting sick from burn pits and toxic exposure. It shouldn't take the wars went on for 20 plus years. There's still soldiers deployed in combat zones right now who are still burning stuff. Even if they're not in the combat zone, they're still burn pits and toxic exposure. And even if they did get rid of the burn pits, there's still other areas that they could be exposed to. There's, you know, when you're getting rid of waste, there's always yes. going to be issues. So were you following the political process on this for many years? I tend to stay, you know, I've learned my lessons when it comes to politics. If anybody's ever Googled my name about following and seeing the political firestorm that goes with it. And that's as true as when it comes to everything, I follow it, but I'm not too hopeful. I'd love to see that this, hey, we're going to pass a PAC Act, boom. But I was try I'm still trying to figure out why you have something like the PAC Act. It can't just be simple. This is what's happening. Let's pass it. No, we're not going to throw in any uh, pork or anything else. Yeah. I mean, the Balad burn pit, Army Times was reporting on this, you know, two years after you were there in 2008 and some version of legislation to address these concerns have been introduced for almost a decade. There was a short time period in the last couple of weeks where the bill had at first passed and then, well, by a preliminary vote, then it went back to the House. Then what happened was uh, the majority of Republicans withdrew their support on the argument that mandatory spending was going to get classified as discretionary spending and they worried that this could blow a hole in the budget. Did you actually... Um, follow that debate and see if they had good points or at that point were you just so sick of it you needed the bill to pass and you weren't buying these uh, accounting arguments i don't buy accounting arguments and you know as someone who's worked for the federal government for 20 something years when we're talking about 300 billion dollars over decades and decades that's what this bill is 300 billion dollars over decades when we have so much fraud, waste, and abuse going on within the government, which is a, a story for a topic for another day when I retire. But when you have so much fraud, waste, and abuse going on right now, or just even waste when it comes to military spending or when it comes to spending in general, uh, let's not put political points behind this. Let's not say, hey, you know what? If this is supported by the Democrats, we're automatically not going to support it. Or this is supported by the Republicans, we're automatically not going to support it. That is where you lose faith in politics. And that's why it does become very frustrating as someone who served and has someone who's been exposed to politics in the past that says, just pass this and just pass it now. And understand that when you're going to pass this legislation, write it in the simplest form. What are the big issues driving you today? What are you talking about on the Protectors podcast these days in the last couple episodes or upcoming episodes? A lot of health stuff, man. Just get in shape. I uh, read a book called The 12 Hour Walk the other day. So, you know, I'm going to walk for 12 hours. I'm going to get myself in shape. So, if I do have these health issues, that I can battle them. And I want other people to be empowered as well. It shouldn't be about political discord. It should be about, hey, you know what? Live your life, learn something, and just move on. Jason Piccolo is a retired infantry captain. He's the author of Out of the Shadows, a government whistleblower's first-hand account of how the protection of migrant children became a political firestorm, and he hosts the Protectors podcast. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for having me. 
And now the spiel. Though he says the words law and order more than Jerry Orbach, temperamentally, Donald Trump is an anarchist. We knew this. In terms of turning his lead balloons of policy into gold, he wasn't much of an alchemist. And today we're finding out he comes up short as an archivist. Mar-a-Lago was raided by federal officials looking for what the Washington Post and others described as classified and unclassified material that did not belong to him. But we're not really sure what they were looking for, and we're not really sure what it means. However, in this media environment, the absence of information is not a moment to be mum. It's an opportunity to shine with extreme conclusions and completely uninformed speculation. In Politico, a source, an off-the-record source, identified as a legal expert, but not by name, perhaps with a minor in Krakenology, was quoted as saying, if they raided his home just to find classified documents he took from the White House, he will be re-elected president in 2024. Hands down, it will prove to be the greatest law enforcement mistake in history. I don't know, the internment of the Japanese was pretty bad, Attica prison, uprising. Anyway, it's good to see that an anonymous person, possibly John Eastman or Ginny Thomas, who knows, says a law enforcement effort only merely to stop a private citizen from possessing classified materials will be so appalling that Republicans won't vote for Ron DeSantis, who, by the way, didn't actually possess classified materials unlawfully. And the result will be Donald Trump will be swept into office by Americans voting their interests, their interests defined as former presidents must, under all circumstance, be allowed to keep whatever documents they like. Suburban moms in Bucks County, they're really into that. Andrew Yang, who has started a third party, agrees with that general sentiment, quoting Anonymous in a tweet. That's good. There's a third party to represent the interest of unheard Americans who really want former presidents to hold on to bombing maps or list of undercover agents overseas or whatever they damn well please. If you think it's the anonymity of the prediction irking me, we can find people who put their names to it. Farrah Griffin, who is a former Trump staffer, she's been given a gig on CNN because she's one of the good ones, like Cassidy Hutchinson, brave enough to speak up. Here's what CNN's contract bought them. This, I'm hoping, goes beyond simply not complying with some archiving laws or DOJ just handed Donald Trump the Republican nominee and potentially the presidency. See, that's how it works. You cut out the middleman or the 50 million middlemen and women who might vote in a Republican primary. It's good for networks, I say, by the way, to include perspectives of conservatives, even former Trumpites who are also not insurrectionists. So fine that she has a contract. The downside is the quality of the perspective is what you just heard there. I think these experts generally overvalue how much your average American is outraged that law enforcement is using its power to treat former presidents like citizens. The voting block for a former president should never have to follow laws is, well, all of them are currently hacking into the side panels of Dominion voting machines outside of Grand Rapids. Some of this block was given voice by Laura Ingram on Fox last night. Well, I think this is one of the lowest points for our republic, certainly in my lifetime. I, I, I mean, maybe during the Nixon era when the things were all coming apart then, but this is about as low as it could get, certainly since then. The lowest, Pearl Harbor, Vietnam, Dred Scott, not a glorious moment. But then she adds the Nixon citation. I assume she acknowledges that Nixon was corrupt. So the critique is, let's say, a little muddled. She just knows that these are sad moments of the presidency. But then she doesn't get into the four who were assassinated. Huh. 
It's just generally reflecting a tisk tisking about law enforcement, law enforcement that would actually seek to enforce such unimportant laws as violated by such an important man. If that, by the way, the violation of records laws is even what's happening. We don't know. We don't know what to make of these raids and this warrant. And MSNBC has at least copped to that. We don't know, they said. But then they said, without saying, but we know it's big. Here's Rachel Maddow introducing a Washington Post reporter who did know, and I'm including in this clip what we were meant to interpret as a portentous pause. In broad historical terms, today will always be the day that you and I and all of us learned that a former president of the United States had been raided by the FBI. Joining us now is Jackie Alamini. It is historical in that it never happened. I'm not arguing that it did, but his two impeachments were historical. The attack on the Capitol was historical. Not attending his successor's inauguration was historical. You know, first time since Andrew Johnson. He just does historical after historical after historical. After so much historical, it becomes a little, I don't know, common routine. MSNBC had their in-house historian, Michael Beschloss, on for insight. Don't think that this is something that has ever happened before in American history. Let's pause for a second to look at how weird and horrible this is. You know, the FBI is going in to search the house of an ex-president because there's serious suspicion that a federal crime was committed here. Yes, there's nothing wrong with that. There really isn't. There's nothing wrong with having a smart guy like Beschloss on to give information. And he did about Nixon and Bibi Rebozo. Can't be too much Bibi Rebozo content for my tastes. Also, the Presidential Records Act. You know, Beschloss is a trustee of the National Archives Foundation, so he's got a dog-eared copy of text in this fight. It's just the whole idea of rendering the present through the lens of history. It always naturally, I think by design, imbues it with an importance it doesn't necessarily have. Again, we don't know what the violations are even alleged to have been. It is unprecedented or historical to investigate a former president for crimes that he may have committed in office. That's what's going on right now, we think. Some sort of investigation, who knows how formal it is, but we are all fairly sure that Merritt Garland is at least looking into possible crimes. This might be parallel to the January 6th investigation. It might not be. But if you're going to investigate crimes, of course, the methods of that investigation are going to be unprecedented. When you have on a historian, you are saying it's historical. But we're talking about the Book of Trump and all the crazy chapters therein. Will some of these pages be notable or memorable? We don't even know what the pages are or if those pages will be archived or flushed down the toilet like so much of the other refuse generated by our former president. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warrell is the assistant producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Ian Scotto helped out producing the show this day. As chief archivist of Peachfish Productions, Michelle Pesca prepares indices, meta tags, and material descriptions, and where possible, converts material into digital format. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oomperu, jeeperu, duperu, and thanks for listening. 